0: Patrick McManus is uh, a humor writer whose topics revolve around the great outdoors. And I bought my first book by him back in the 70s. How's that for old? (laughs) And uh, took it into a fast food joint and began reading it as I ate my sandwiches. What a mistake that was. He got a hold of my funny bone and he turned it every which way but loose. (laughs) I was sitting in that eatery by myself laughing out loud and almost continuously and I could barely eat my sandwiches. A lot of people were looking at me and wondering. I'm not saying that anybody got up and moved, but they must have thought about it. It was a little embarrassing, but i do it again. <laughs> it was a good time for me. One of the stories uh, he told talked about the need to have the right tool. And the example he used was the ball on a trailer hitch. And he explains that they come in three sizes, too small, too big, and just right. And he didn't have the just right size, and the too big size didn't work, so he used the too small. He discovered his mistake, and uh, he vowed ever after to only use the just right side when he saw his boat trying to pass him on the interstate. Having the right tool is important. Sometimes, though, you can have the right tool but not have the knowledge how to use it. Uh, After I graduated from seminary, I worked for a time on the grounds crew of a local hospital and we had a lot of community service workers paying their debt to society for public drunkenness and things like that by putting in work hours to make the jobs happy you understand and one day i took one of those workers to a place where we had recently planted some trees and they needed to be staked and i gave him a post hole driver And and, a post driver, and if you don't know what that is, if you've never seen one, it's a steel tube, it's about this long, and it's closed on one end, and there's two handles on each side, and you put it over the post or the stake, and you slam it up and down, and it really is quite effective. And I left the guy to his task, but I drove by a little later, and he was standing there, and he was holding a stake in one hand, and he was trying to take this... Post driver in the other hand, and and he was trying to swing it like a hammer. He'd get it up on his shoulder and he'd kind of hump it up and try to swing it, and he just couldn't do it. I I, I assume that at that point he had a new respect for landscapers if they could swing a thing like that. And as much as I appreciated that respect, I I thought I'd better help him out. And so between gasps and spasms of laughter, I showed him how to use it, and he was glad for the instruction. You have to be smarter than your tools. (laughs) And yet, if you really want to succeed, the right tool and the right know-how are important, but having the right team is best of all. Your team may be as small as yourself and your family who supports you and the accountant you hire for your small business. But if he or she knows their job and you have the support and encouragement of your loved ones, your life is better and you can concentrate on what you do best. You you may be a part of a multinational corporation with thousands of employees and all the politics that go with that, but if you're on a solid team, all the office drama becomes mere background noise, and your team, with your help, gets the job done. And we here, as followers of Christ, have a job to do. We are to storm the gates of hell, to rescue those who are lost. And our team is the church, the local expression of the body of Christ. And I think that we have a great team here. And together we are working to bring the light to those in the darkness. Now we've talked about how God gives us what we need to do, the job. And now we're in a series on the church, growing in our understanding, or at least being reminded of what we already know so that we can be a more effective team. Today's text will be familiar to you. I, I suppose most of what we will talk about today may not be new to any of you here, but then we're not about the novel, we're all about the truth and truth. Even truth we already know has a way of getting inside of us and strengthening us and setting us free. So I'd like to invite you to join me uh, in the book of Matthew this time, the last chapter, chapter 28, where we're going to be looking at verses uh, 16 through 20. And of course, uh, the cave up there i will have it on the screen on either side of me. Our passage uh, begins in a straightforward and matter-of-fact way in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples, those are the remaining of the apostles, minus the betrayer who had hanged himself, went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now that's simple enough. The disciples were told to meet Jesus on a certain mountain, and they obeyed. The backstory, however points us to what is, at the very least, an intriguing possibility, but which I'm convinced, and others are also, is indeed a fact. Because it explains so completely something that follows comes in the following verse, and because it fits so well with uh, scriptures found in other places in the Bible. Matthew only records two of Jesus' many resurrection uh, appearances. Though, of course, he knew of all the others. He records the one that we're going to look at, but before that, he tells us of another one. It's found in this chapter near the beginning in verses 8 through 10. And it tells us of the women who were at the tomb, and they had just seen a vision of an angel who told them that Jesus had risen. And we read in those verses... So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. And suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, and they came to him and grasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Which is going to bring us to our text today. Now there are a couple of things which are interesting about this episode. Women were the first to see the risen Christ. And the culture of that day, they would not have been allowed to give testimony in court, but Jesus entrusted them to deliver this instruction to the other believers. Now, Christianity elevates the status of women. Uh, It did so then, and it always does everywhere it goes. And this instruction is the first anyone knew of this proposed meeting. It wasn't something that was discussed before the resurrection. Later on, when the text says that they went to Galilee where Jesus had told them to go, it's referring to this telling by the women. And then there's this. This isn't something that... um, anyone would just see it's not lying on the ground so that you just trip over it you have to do a little digging but once you once you see it it's kind of like a jewel that you tuck away because of its value and you understand a little better what's happening here you see that the term brothers like the term here in verse 10 is always used in matthew and in many other places in the scripture to refer to all the believers, not just to 12. So so get this. The instruction that the women took to Jesus' brothers was that all of his followers were to convene on this particular mountain that he told them about. In verse 16, where we begin, it simply tells us that the apostles also went in obedience to the commandment brought by these women. I have to tell you, many theologians believe and I I agree that this meeting on that mountain in Galilee was where Jesus appeared to the 500 people at one time that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15. And with that piece of information in mind, we can better understand what happens in verse 17 when we read this. When they saw him, they worshipped him. I think we understand that part If we were there, we would have worshipped him too, we think, and I, I hope we would have. But the next part would baffle us if it were only the apostles there. But some doubted, the text says. If it were just the 11 there, how could they doubt? I mean, Jesus had already appeared to 10 of them on the night of the resurrection. All but Thomas were there. Matthew was there. Peter was there. John was there. All of them were there. Maybe even others were there besides the apostles. And then a week later, on the next Sunday, Jesus came back again. And this time, Thomas was there. Even he believed, and there was no doubt. On that day of the resurrection, we know that Jesus appeared separately to at least Mary and Peter and the two men on the road to Emmaus. Everyone was hearing of this, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Even the unbelievers were hearing talk of that resurrection. And yet for many of the believers, this meeting on the mountain in Galilee would have been the first time that they saw the risen Christ. Maybe it was the only time, but it was real. And yet, some of them doubted it. Now, don't be too quick to look down on them. If you or I had been there, we may have done no better. And I want to come back to this doubt, which they had a little later. But for now, all of this sets the stage for this very famous, well-known portion of the Scripture, which we call the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to make disciples, which is where we're going to begin right now. We're going to turn there to verse 19. And we read this, Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. I'm going to stop right there. We are to make disciples. That's the main verb in this commandment, and you've no doubt heard that. And if you've been here in this church any length of time, I've told you that. Everything else, all the other verbs, uh, they kind of hang off this one idea, helping us to understand what that looks like to make disciples. The making of the disciples is an imperative. That is, it's a commandment. But who's it given to? Who is it addressed to? I mean, it's clear that it's not just given to the apostles. I mean, Jesus had all of his believers meet him there on that mountain. He intended for all of them to receive that command also. And yet it can't be given just to individuals because the disciple-making is to happen everywhere to all the nations. And by now, since we've been talking about it for so many weeks about the church, and we've been talking about our team as being the church this morning, you already have the answer. That's right. This commandment is given to the church, which means every local expression of the body of Christ, like us here at Y Bible Church, has been instructed to do our part to make disciples of all nations. For not even the local church can fulfill this commission on its own. It takes all of Christ's churches to reach the world. But that's what we're to do. And each one of us, as part of the body, we have a responsibility for fulfilling that great commission. Now, there's more to say about our individual part of this, but for now... I want to give you a handle uh, uh, so you can help, at least I hope it will help you take hold of what Jesus is doing here. This is an off-site. It's a retreat. You, You can think of it maybe as something like a planning and strategy meeting. Jesus has taken his people who are going to reach the world for him away Uh, away from their daily routine, from their normal practices, those things which demand 90% of their attention under normal circumstances. And he spends time with them to focus their attention, to get them to see and to understand, to accept the one thing that matters above all the rest, what we exist for, that we are to storm the gates of hell. We are to reach the world Christ. Now, I understand that a lot goes into that. If we aren't loving God, and if we're not loving one another, then we won't reach the lost. If our own cups are not full, we won't have anything to offer others. We need to honor God as we worship him. We need to grow in our faith. We need to serve and share, just as our vision statement says. We need all of that so we can become the kind of people who have a heart for others. And part of the world we're to reach, our first responsibility is our own children. And so as a church, we have family ministries and Awana Sunday school, missions trips, But then that brings us full circle again, doesn't it? For what we want for our own children, we should want for all children. So Jesus took his people to the top of a mountain to implant this truth in the church, to focus their attention before the day of Pentecost so that when the Spirit came upon them, they'd know what to do. And down through the centuries, people who know Christ, Know that others need to know him too. Now, this was a, a mountaintop experience, and it, it is all too easy, isn't it? Haven't you experienced this when you come down off the mountain to forget what you went to the mountain for? I mean, almost certainly. If you look at the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ as they stand in the Bible, it is almost certain that right after Jesus gave this great commission, while the apostles were still in Galilee and before they returned to Jerusalem, that Peter takes his eye off the ball. He decides to go fishing, and many of the others went with him too. Now I don't know. Maybe it's just my own experiences coloring this. Maybe it was just some downtime for their offsite for their retreat. And yet, after a night of fishing and not catching anything, not one even recognized Jesus standing on the shore. Not even if he, after he told them to drop the net in again. It wasn't until they caught a whopping big load of fish that John said, "It's the Lord." And then they saw, and they knew. I guess they weren't looking for him. Imagine that. We're not different. But we dare not lose sight of this truth. And we are to reach the world for Christ. Not if we want to do what God has called us to do. Make disciples. That is our commission. Now, I want to look briefly at what follows the command to make disciples, and there are two participles which follow, and as I said, they hang off the main verb. These things don't tell you how to make disciples. We, We already know that. Disciples are made when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ. But once that happens, Jesus tells us two things which ought to accompany that faith. The first one he mentions is that disciples need to be baptized. So we'll read verse 19. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Disciples get baptized. Now in those days, it was pretty much a one, two step. You trusted Jesus, he got baptized. And in many parts of our world today, uh, that's true, especially in those places where being a Christian is dangerous. There isn't time for reflection. There you immediately step into a war. You believe, you get baptized, you follow Christ. It's pretty straightforward. In our country, baptism is often delayed. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, people have been exposed to a, a lot of different ideas about baptism, and they need to sort through those things. I mean, we want people to know. We want them to understand the why of it all, don't we? But we could do a better job of helping them to see how important it is. Baptism stands right next to and is on equal footing with the next thing which accompanies belief, which is the teaching for disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. And that, it seems to me, makes baptism something pretty important. Now, I'm not saying any of this to try to make anyone feel bad. I mean, I mean how can you know? I'm afraid the church itself has become a little lax in this teaching. It's understandable how it's happened, but we need to fix it. See, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. This is not my idea. It's his command. I don't get a bounty for every head that gets dunked. And and I am as likely to make someone angry with this statement as to encourage someone to obey. But there it is, the truth in all its plainness and simplicity. So if you have questions about baptism, get them answered and then obey. There's a whole lot more here and more than we can cover in this time. But let's at least consider what we're baptized into. We are baptized into the name. And that word there is singular. That is one name. But we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The name which is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, we are baptized into the Trinity, which is a distinctly Christian doctrine, unlike anything else in the world. And when Christ came and died and rose again, the nature of the Godhead was clearly revealed to us. Our baptism sets us apart from every other group in the world, and we declare that truth every time someone gets baptized. Baptism is symbolic. But it is not symbolic like a flag is. It doesn't just represent some truth. It's symbolic the way a wedding is. It's a declaration of commitment to Jesus Christ who was and is and is to come. God who has come in the flesh. Last year... Jesse Kramer, what are you, seven, six, something like that, got baptized. And afterwards, his dad said to him, you know what this means, Jesse? And he said, yeah, it means I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what it means. We're to make disciples. And those disciples, once they're made, are to be baptized. And then they, the disciples, are to be taught in what is a lifelong process, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This learning, uh, this obedience which follows it is a lifelong process. We teach not just to inform but to bring about a change in behavior and not just for behavior's sake, but because of the heart which accompanies it. This teaching that we do is not merely theoretical. It's a way of life. We need to know what the Word says, and then we need to know what it means so that we can do what it says. Jesus tells us the person who hears his Word but doesn't obey them It's like a person who builds her house on the sand. And when the storm comes, and it will come, that house falls with a great crash and its destruction is complete. But when you do what Jesus says, your life is solid, like a house built on the rock. And when the storm comes, and it will come, no matter how hard it blows and shakes and rumbles and threatens, the house will stand. Baptism is a one-time declaration, like a wedding. Obedience to his teaching is like the marriage which follows the wedding. It's the day-by-day living out of our declaration that we will follow Jesus Christ. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus and love them into the kingdom. Get them baptized. So they're declaring they will follow Jesus, who is God, together with the Father and the Son. Then teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do. So they will build a solid life. And you have your part to play in that, and the church comes alongside of you. Now, you'll have noticed that I skipped over the first verb. Well, it's actually a participle in the original language. Uh, we were told to go. And I did that because that instruction to go is important to every one of us in this room. Uh, that is, if you're a Christian. Now, almost every translation of the Bible you'll see, uh, maybe every one, I-, I didn't check them all out, but most, if not all of them, translate that Greek participle as an imperative to go. Now, there's a reason for that. There are some grammatical reasons that I'm not going to go into But there's also uh, uh, the idea of going is inherent in the idea of reaching all the nations. You can't do that unless you go. So what I'm going to tell you doesn't take anything away from that. Uh, What I'm going to tell you adds to our understanding of this truth. A strict translation of the beginning of verse 19 would read, Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. That is, as you're going, as you live out your lives, as you go about your business every day, day in and day out, make disciples. That's your job. And that's important to all of us. I mean, some people are called by God to be missionaries. They go to some other area or land and take the good news to people. But all of us are called to make disciples right here where we are as we go about our lives. And some of you right now, some of you hearing that are doubting. Oh, I don't mean that you doubt what I'm telling you. No, you're doubting like those Christians on that mountain in Galilee doubted. They saw and they knew what they were seeing was real, but how could it be? And you heard what I said, and I think you know it's true, but how can that be? How could I ever be of any use in that way? So you're doubting. Did you notice what Jesus did for those doubters on that mountain? Look at verse 17 and 18 again. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them. He knew they were doubting, and so he came to them. He comforts them with his presence. How, how many times have you felt his presence and been comforted by that Surely if you know Christ, you know what I'm talking about. And and he came to them with words, his words, words of wonderful assurance that have comforted God's people down through the ages. He told them, uh, verse 18 again, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Some translations say all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's about the same thing. Uh, That Jesus has the authority means he has the power. That he has the power means he has the authority. Uh, But the authority, though, is not just to command you. Yes, he's God Almighty, and he has the right to command you, but he is telling us something more than that. He's telling us that his authority also empowers us. When he gives you a task... He gives you all you need to do, what he asks. He knows you can't do it uh, on your own. He knows you need him. He has the power. If he sends you on a journey of 10,000 miles, he gives you what you need to make that journey. And he will give you what you need as you need it. He doesn't give it to you beforehand, but when you need it, it will be there. We... Walk by faith, not by sight. So when it comes to making disciples, you won't suddenly feel like you're some kind of a great evangelist. You still won't feel like you have what it takes. But if you take his words to heart, you'll find enough courage to step out in faith. And then you'll find that you have just what is needed right then. Maybe this will help. You know, for most of us, making disciples is as simple as this. Make a friend. Be a friend. Bring a friend to Christ. Love people. Pray for them. And when the time is right, you'll know it, and you'll know just what to say and what to do. Because Jesus will give you what you need just when you need it. And don't forget, He's made you a part of a team where you'll also find strength and comfort and encouragement. And if that weren't enough, <laughs> right, Jesus closes out this offsite, this retreat with his disciples with these words at the end of verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You're part of Jesus' team, the church. He not only sends you, he empowers you. He not only sends you, he goes with you. He's with you now. He is with you always. He is with you to the very end of time itself and then beyond. go, make disciples. As you're going, as you're living in life, make disciples. For he has all power, and he is with you. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, thank you for um, your goodness to us, and for your generosity. we Thank you, Lord, that though you um, call us to do things in this life, you will always provide for our means. And we know that nothing ever comes into our life that you don't provide a way for us to make it through it. You're faithful. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And you will take us and use us in wonderful ways, if we step out in faith and trust you. Lord, help us. Help us to do that very thing, to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.